This morning we, uh, we forge ahead in our study of the book of Proverbs, a book all about wisdom. Wisdom, what we've been saying since the beginning of this series, is about learning to live well in the world. Wisdom isn't the same as law. It's not a, sub, a set of do's and don'ts. It's not even first and foremost about morality how, and how good you are. It's involved with morality, but the bigger picture is wisdom as, a, as, as, as living well in the world as it is, as paying attention as submitting everything about your life to the gaze of wisdom and to the reality of a creator who made us and designed the world to work in a certain way. Our job as those who didn't make the world, only live in it, is to try to figure out how it works. That's what wisdom is about. To figure out what God has set up, what he's designed, and then to embrace it and live with it. Now, one of the other things we've said about Proverbs is that the first nine chapters of the book are different from chapters 10 to 31. Chapters 10 to 31 in the book have the stuff we normally think of when we think of Proverbs. Lots of really pithy, creative, poetic statements about life in the world. Zingers, if you will. Usually one verse jumps to another topic in the next verse, jumps to another topic in the one after that, and it's scattered all through the chapters. But the first nine chapters of Proverbs aren't that way. Those chapters stick together. They're they're longer poems, celebrating wisdom, written from a father to a son, encouraging that son to to understand and embrace the way that the world is, to seek wisdom with, with great attention, to really aim his whole life at seeking, discovering, and living with wisdom. Those first nine chapters are foundational to the rest of the book. You won't know what to do with all the pithy, tweetable statements in chapters 10 to 31 if you don't get what wisdom is from chapters 1 to 9. That's what we've been saying. Now, here's what might surprise you. It might surprise you to know that roughly a quarter of the material in the first nine chapters, laying the foundation for everything else that comes in the book, roughly a quarter of that material is about sex. Roughly one quarter. It might surprise you, but you know, it, it shouldn't surprise you. In a book that's about living well in the world as it is, that, that sort of book a book that's about wisdom, well, it should be about the stuff of life. It should be about what we're thinking about. And we're thinking about sex, aren't we? What Proverbs says about sex is going to challenge our assumptions. It's going to challenge our assumptions in ways that may surprise you. And I want to get right into it. I want to read for us. We're going we're to be covering a lot of ground this morning. We're not going to read it all right here at the beginning. I want to start, though, with where... Proverbs 1 to 9 gets into the topic. It starts in chapter 5. We're going to be looking mostly at chapter 5 and chapter 7. And I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read the first six verses of chapter 5. This is going to set us up. We're going to go a lot further as, the, as, as our time together unfolds this morning. We're going to start with Proverbs' start to the subject. This is the word of the Lord from Proverbs chapter 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. 
I want to start with the premise of Proverbs on the subject of sex. We're going to start with its premise. Its premise is that wise sex is bounded sex. You can follow along with me as we unpack this in the worship guide. You should have gotten a worship guide. There's a page there, a panel there that's got the, 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 the points and the passages we're going to be looking at this morning. We're starting with what Proverbs doesn't actually try to prove, with where Proverbs begins. And that is that wise sex is bounded sex. Maybe you noticed in this opening passage a reference to the forbidden woman. Did you see that? Verse 3. Literally, it's the strange woman, the outside woman. The woman outside the bounds. So what's going on here? Who is this woman? Why is she forbidden? Why is she a she? I'm going to take that last question first. You you may have noticed. it's It's not that Proverbs views women as uniquely problematic. I mean, we know that, actually what we know from our experience is that more often than not, sexual predation is a man's problem. Why is Proverbs talking about this woman as a seductress who's the problem that you've got to watch out for? The answer to that is really simple. It, it, it's that these first chapters in Proverbs 1-9 to are aimed at a son. The whole thing is aimed as a father instructing his son about how to live in the world. Uh, In particular, most people think Proverbs were designed for teaching young, up-and-coming leaders or rulers for the nation what it would look like to live well in the world and to rule well in the world. So what would a young, up-and-coming ruler need to know? A young, male, up-and-coming ruler. Well, that guy would need to watch out for a woman who's outside of the bounds. But we're within our rights. we're, We're within what Proverbs would want from us if we just flip that and talk about forbidden men as well. It isn't, it isn't about being afraid of women who are outside the bounds who are coming for you. It's about anybody that you might want to have sex with who is outside the bounds that Proverbs assumes for sexuality. hope that makes sense. What bounds does Proverbs assume? What makes this woman a forbidden or a strange or an outside woman? Well, Proverbs doesn't philosophize. Proverbs isn't going to give us a treatise on where marriage comes from and what marriage is. That's not its thing. Proverbs is about the nitty-gritty of living well in the world. Proverbs assumes, starts with, a premise that it inherits from earlier teaching in the Bible. Proverbs assumes that the people who are hearing and reading what's written here in chapter 5 also know about Genesis 1 and 2. They know about the creation of man and woman about God's call for man and woman to unite together, to become one flesh, to be transformed in something different because they were together. It would assume that the person reading what's written here would have also been familiar with Israel's laws, which explain how marriage is supposed to work in Israel's nation. Really teaching that carries through all the way into the New Testament and is reaffirmed by Jesus and by the apostles that he put in place to explain how the church ought to live. And there's one consistent message from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through the end of the New Testament. And that is that sexuality is a gift designed by God and given to be used in a marriage between one man and one woman. That's Proverbs' premise. So this forbidden woman is forbidden. She's strange. She's outside of the bounds because she represents sex outside the context of that personal and committed abiding relationship. Here's how one New T- or Old Testament scholar put it. She stands 
for one who engages in a sexual intercourse with no intention of a binding or enduring relationship. That's the forbidden woman. Sometimes in these chapters, she appears as a married woman who's trying to have sex with someone who's not her husband. Sometimes she appears as a prostitute who's trying to have sex with anyone who will pay her. But really, it's one woman. And the idea is outside the bounds. One woman, one man, what does it matter? Anyone who's not married to you. That's what Proverbs assumes. I wonder how that's striking you this morning. All right, even just press pause right here before we go any further with what the teaching of Proverbs is. How's it striking you so far? I wonder. I wonder if it sounds retrograde to your ears. Kind of a, a restriction on sexuality that seems absolutely arbitrary. As arbitrary maybe as the old food laws of, of the Old Testament. You know, what kinds of meat or fish you can and can't eat. Does it seem as arbitrary to you as that? I wonder. I wonder if it seems to belong more to the world of the scarlet letter, right? Didn't we all read that in high school or college? This, this New England Puritan community finds out that a woman has transgressed the bounds of married sexual love and attaches a scarlet letter to mark her from then till the end of her life as outside of the community. Maybe you're hearing forbidden woman, outside woman, and you're thinking the old days when we used to banish people who were different from us people who had maybe slipped up, made a mistake. Maybe it just feels like sex shouldn't be this big of a deal. It's just an appetite like any other. We belong to a a culture where we're downloading constantly information in a culture where sex is treated that way, as as just another appetite, so that restricting it makes no more sense than restricting what I eat. The only thing that matters in the values that we're absorbing, whether we realize it or not, through all the things we watch and listen to and read, what matters is personal taste. Do I want this thing? And availability. Can I afford this thing? Maybe it seems to you that living wisely in the world would be more about shedding boundaries that hold our desires in check. Boundaries like marriage, gender, or the threat of childbirth. The more we can get rid of those boundaries, the wiser, the better we'll be able to live. I wonder if it seems that way to you. If so, you're in good company. Because we belong to a time and a place where restrictions on chosen lifestyles by consenting adults don't make a lot of sense. We get, I think, we get that, we, that we're limited physically. We recognize that we as humans can't just do whatever we want to do physically in the world. We know that if we were to walk up to a cliff and step off of it, we would fall. And we don't try to push back on those boundaries. I mean, maybe somebody out there is trying to design some sort of eye jetpack or whatever that you can strap onto your, be- onto your back and check your messages as you fly through space. I don't know. Technologically, maybe we're trying to solve those physical limitations. But we do get that the world has certain limits, right? You, you step off a cliff, you fall to the ground. We accept that and don't put back, push back against it because we can't. But the thought that lifestyle choices could be limited in the same way we may not be able to fly whether we'd like it or not but we ought to be able to do what we want to do. But Proverbs is making another claim. Proverbs is assuming and is about to test for us that just as our physical bodies are made to work within this physical environment and like it or not, are subject to things like the laws of gravity. 
just like our physical bodies are bounded in that way, like it or not, just as it would be harmful for us to push back and deny those physical limits, just as it's fruitful and effective for us to recognize those physical laws and embrace them, that just in that same way, our Creator has established laws about lifestyles, boundaries about quality of life, about what choices will lead to a fruitful and effective life in the world and what choices will lead to a fall and a crash. That laws about principles, boundaries put in place about our lifestyles are just as real, whether we see them or not, as laws like gravity. It would be just as foolish, Proverbs assumes, to pretend like we set our own boundaries, that we can flourish on our terms, as it would be to insist that we can fly if we want to, that we could fly if that's what we want to make us happy. It's what Proverbs means when it talks about the fear of the Lord. So from the very beginning of this series, we've said that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. That's what Proverbs says. What does that mean? We've been saying it means recognizing that there is a God and we're not him. That there's a God who made us and who structured the world to work in a certain way. We are not the one who made us or structured the world to work in a certain way. Therefore, we are limited and we want to figure out what, it, what those limits are. We want to try to discover how God has structured the world and then to embrace that. That's what fear of the Lord looks like in all the areas of our life and in sexuality just as much as in what words we use or how we spend our money or in any of the other topics we're going to cover in our series. So if it's not sitting well so far, I want to encourage you to keep an open mind and to think about the fact that how you receive Proverbs' assumption that our sexuality should be bounded in the same way that our laws of gravity bind us physically. The way you receive or or, or experience that assumption from Proverbs is cultured into you. You are, you are part of a particular time and place that is affecting how you read this passage and you want to be as critical of what you're bringing to the text as you are of the text itself. I would encourage you to keep an open mind. And now I want to get into what Proverbs actually says. Because one of the things we've been saying about Proverbs is that it's designed to model for us what ifs. Proverbs is full of, of examples of what would happen if you embrace this way of living versus this way of living. Let me play it out for you so that you don't have to learn from experience. You can learn from the experience of other people. Trust the models. This is how it works. We talked about Proverbs as kind of like a flight simulator where you get to get in through Proverbs and practice living, practice this certain approach, practice this landing. You'll see which ones crash. You'll see which ones go well. Proverbs gives us two alternate ways of being sexual beings two models gives us two ways of being and then shows us two different results and the goal of these models is to help you decide to embrace the boundaries that god has placed around sexuality rather than to push back against them so i want to track with i want to i want us to track together through the two models i think they're going to surprise you maybe you expect that with this emphasis on boundaries that proverbs is most at home most aimed at people who are buttoned up, so to speak, embarrassed of the fact that it takes sex to make babies, inhibited and 
maybe a little ridiculous, but you'd be wrong. The boundaries that Proverbs places around sexuality have nothing to do with how much you enjoy sex or how you conduct yourself in the act of making love. Proverbs is not about drawing boundaries about what sex should look like. Proverbs boundaries are all about who you have sex with. Now, I want to get into it. These these models point the way for us. I want to begin with Proverbs warning. Who not to have sex with. A profile of the forbidden woman and what it looks like to hear and respond to the forbidden woman's temptations. This comes out in chapter 7. And we're going to, I'm just going to own the, the language of the text as we walk through it. But remember, you can plug and play here. If, if, if it works for you, if you're, if you're a woman this morning, you can plug and play forbidden man and the same message comes through. The same message applies. Proverbs chapter 7 is this long, uh, I guess it's really almost a, a story or a parable imagined by the teacher for his son of something that he observed in his life and a warning based on what he's observed to the son to be careful about who he sleeps with. Starts in, I, I'm gonna, I want to pick up the story in verse 6 of chapter 7 and just walk through it together. At the window of my house, the father says, I've looked down through my lattice and I've seen among the people, among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. So far, so good. A father looking down from a window on a group of maybe young students just come out of their tutoring. They're simple. In Proverbs, that means they're not quite yet foolish. It's that they aren't committed yet to wisdom. They're open-minded. They're exploring. They're learning to live in the world and they're open to what might make the best life for them. The simple are those who haven't committed yet. And one of these simple boys peels off from the herd. Passing along the street, verse 8 continues, near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, at the time of his need, of his loneliness, of his desire. Maybe he thinks he's strong enough that the the danger is not what his out-of-touch instructor has told him it would be. That he needs to experience for himself what he's always been told is wrong. Whatever Whatever he brings to the encounter, this is where the woman meets him. And she comes right at him. She's ready. He might be open. He might be finding himself. She knows what she wants and she goes for it. Verse 10. Behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, dressed to kill, but wily of heart, holding herself back, offering her body, holding herself back. She is loud and wayward. Her feet don't stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. When she sees him, she seizes him. She kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I'm going to press pause again. Don't miss what's going on here. Now we've transitioned from her actual physical embrace of him, her kissing of him, her, uh, her uh, appealing to him based on her body, to what she says to him. And here's where, here's where I think you will be surprised at how contemporary, how modern her selling of herself to this man will appear. Friends, it it didn't take 1960s Westerners to figure out that unbounded sex sounds pretty good. Thousands of years ago, this woman got it. 
First, she strokes his ego. I came looking for you. I was seeking you eagerly. You're the one I want. She's selling him on his own best image of himself. He's special. He's attractive. He's not like the rest. He's the one that women want. This is always part of the thrill of unbounded sex. Part of the concern about keeping it in marriage. If I just keep sex in my marriage, then I'll lose out on the experience of seduction, of trying to convince someone else that I'm the one that they want, that I have something that they can't get anywhere else. But she doesn't want him, not really. Her feet wander all about. She's constantly on the prowl. She's never satisfied. She wants what he offers. She doesn't want him. Next, she appeals to his appetite. That reference to sacrifices and vows paid, that always seemed kind of random and out of place to me, but I found out through reading this week that it's almost certainly a reference to the food she had at home. So you would have gone and, and performed certain sacrifices at the temple. Well, you, you sacrifice an animal and you get to take some of that meat home. It's pretty, it's pretty rare to have meat to enjoy in this ancient world. So to have just been to the temple and performed your sacrifices meant you had some delicious food waiting on you. She's offering him a great meal. And packaged with appealing to his appetite for food, she appeals to his other senses as well. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens, soft to the touch from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Smells good drawing him in using every one of his senses. She knows what he wants. Come, verse 18 says, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. She lumps in this promise of a nice meal with this elaborate scene. It almost reads like a commercial, like something you might see selling beer or lotion of some sort. You know you want this, she says. We both do. It'll make us happy. These are good things. Why wouldn't we? Why deny ourselves what we want? She's appealed to his ego and to his appetite. And then finally she appeals with the nail in the coffin. The dagger he can't resist. Nothing will come of it. No strings attached. Verse 19. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. He went out on the town. And at full moon, he'll come home. What's that? What's that about? I've got a husband. He takes care of me. You won't have to. No responsibility here. And he's going to be gone a long time. We won't get caught. There are literally no strings attached, she tells him. Sex for its own sake. Sex without commitment. Sex without consequences. No one gets hurt. No big deal. No more lasting effect than a nice steak dinner. Now Proverbs so far, it it doesn't deny that sex outside the bounds can seem like this at the start. Like just a normal appetite that's enjoyable to satisfy. May as well go for it. Proverbs isn't denying that that might be what it seems like to you right now, where you are in your life, with your opportunities. It might seem like there's no strings attached. But verses 22 and 23 complete the model. They point to what actually happens in reality. With much seductive speech, she persuades him and with her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. 
but he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. That bird might enjoy his meal for a time. The bird in the snare at first doesn't even know he's caught. He's just chowing down on whatever was put in the snare to lure him in there in the first place. He's enjoying himself. He is soothing his appetites. But that bird is dead. Her steps go down to Sheol. Her house is the way to Sheol, verse 27, going down to the chambers of death. Maybe that seems over the top to you. that, That death is really on the line. Same would be said by the bird who's in a trap if you warned him that he was going to be destroyed. Maybe you do know from experience the deceptive and destructive power that sex can have without relationship. Some of you have those broken hearts. Some of you have carried that baggage into your marriages. Some of you have taken on addictions that to this day you can't shake. And you don't have to look far in society to see other effects of free-for-all, unbounded sex. Sexual liberation has happened. Are we more sexually satisfied in our culture? Is there really more fulfillment for men and women alike? What do we see? Isn't it true that the economic effects of sexual liberation have been devastating? That many find themselves trapped in a cycle of alimony and child support that they can't afford, which puts them in prison, which costs them their jobs, which costs the families the support that they need to survive? Haven't we seen the cultural effects of single-parent families and abandoned children? Haven't we seen a rise in the prominence of sexual violence? And should we be surprised? One of my favorite writers is a guy named Wendell Berry. writes essays and, and fiction books. and He's got this amazing essay on sex in our society. They wrote about 20 years ago. And he notes the fact that we've all sort of shed our hesitations about sex. We have become unbounded. We are free to go and do what we want. We've made ourselves free to pursue whatever our desires tell us to pursue. But then we've recognized there are some boundaries we want to we draw. We, uh, we, for example, don't want children to be molested. We don't want women to be abused. We don't want teens to get pregnant. We don't want folks harassed at their offices. But Barry says that's trying to draw the lines there when we've cast off all other boundaries is a lot like saying that falling is flying until you hit the ground. And then when you hit the ground, trying to outlaw it. Proverbs is offering us a model so that we don't have to learn from experience just how destructive sex outside of the bounds can be. 
Sex with no enduring relationship. Sex that isn't aimed at deepening the affection of a husband and a wife for each other. That's Proverbs' negative model. That's its warning. But there's a positive model here too, and it's, it will really surprise you. Because maybe what you're thinking, especially if this is hitting you the wrong way, if, it, if it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to talk about this, if you're thinking scarlet letter is what this text wants, what this preacher's trying to go back to, I wonder if chapter 5 will surprise you. All this talk about boundaries might make you think that Proverbs belongs to a world where people were embarrassed of sex, where they saw it as dirty, as merely necessary for procreation, as marginal to marriage. But that is a far cry. In fact, what Proverbs says, if the premise of Proverbs is that wise sex is bounded sex, the argument of Proverbs through these two models we're unpacking is that wise sex is actually better sex. That you'll enjoy it more. That it'll be life-giving and transformational for you in a way that unbounded sex never could be. Notice one thing about chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. The way that sex itself is described, not really different from the other model, from the negative model. It's not like the woman appealed to the guy's senses about how, how wonderful it would be to have sex, uninhibited. And then the positive description of sex is just about the relational effects of sex. It's not that. It's also about the physical enjoyment of it. Look at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated means be led astray, be stumbling around, be weak in the knees, always in her love. The physical pleasure that Proverbs 5 celebrates in sex takes a backseat to no one's description. The boundaries are not about what you do when you have sex. The expectation is that why sex is frequent sex, always, at all times, that it's delicious sex, that it's intoxicating sex, that it's not just a means to the end of childbirth. Kids aren't mentioned in this passage. This is sex for its own sake, except that it isn't. Sex is beautiful on its own. It is essential to a healthy marriage. There are no inhibitions urged here in Proverbs 5. The difference is this. That this uninhibited, this intoxicating lovemaking is aimed at something different. Whereas it was simply quenching the desires of the moment in the model of chapter 7, here is personal and therefore has permanent effects. If sex were just about physical delight, then you could, may, you, you could maybe make a a sort of case for getting plenty of practice before you get married. Almost like you're doing your future spouse a favor if you get some experience. Maybe you've heard some sort of claim that virgins have a hard time on their wedding night. That maybe I ought to get some experience while I can. 
And if sex was only about physical pleasure, if it was only about efficiency and technique, if it was only about performance, then maybe that argument would make sense. But it's not. It's more than that. Sex is more than about performance. Sex is about communication. Sex is about self-giving, about complete openness before another, about no boundaries on how much of myself you can have. So to have practiced before you get married is not to have improved your technique so that your spouse has a good experience on your wedding night. It is to have practiced lying. It is to have practiced telling someone that you're giving yourself to them when you aren't. It's personal. Drink from your cistern. Water from your well. Your springs shouldn't be scattered abroad. Let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Do you see those boundaries? This is meant for you and yours. It's not a public commodity traded on an open market. It belongs to this relationship, and that's where it comes alive. That's where it's life-giving. And because of that, used as a fuel to deepen a husband and wife's affection for each other, when it's used that way, then the physical pleasure of sex takes on a whole nother level. What I mean is that if you're just trading your body on an open market, I don't mean literal prostitution necessarily, but just getting as much sex as you can convince someone else to have with you. If you're trading your body on the open market, then at some point, what you have to offer, your body as commodity is going to depreciate in value. When it's not personal, it's not permanent. It's not lasting. The clock is ticking. Gravity always wins. But when sex is, is used and cultivated within the context of a bounded, permanent, and abiding relationship, It's not like the physical joys of sex then take a back seat. This passage is pointing to those physical joys. But it it almost reads to me like a retrospective. It almost reads to me like someone talking to a husband, thinking back on when his wife was young, but talking to him then, there, for the now. Let the wife of your youth, let her body, her breasts, intoxicate you indefinitely. It's not let her body give you joy until her body is not enjoyable anymore. Then you move on to some sort of spiritual marriage. No, that's not what it says. At all times, always be intoxicated by her love. Friends, that's possible in a marriage where sex is used to deepen the abiding commitment that a man and a wife have for each other and not as a commodity that they buy and sell as much of as they can. You've got to reject the messages you're getting all over the place from our culture about what kind of resource your body is. They're lies and they don't last. But sex in the context of marriage, oh, it goes on. Because this is not someone whose body you chose out of a lineup. This is not someone whose body is an it, a thing, an object that you use. This body belongs to someone you love. This body is a she. This body is a he. 
This body is yours. You can treat your body as a commodity that you can rent out, as sex as something that you can purchase for a while with whatever it is you have to offer. But it'll never be something you can own. You'll only ever get as much as you can pay for, but it'll never be yours. Why sex is sex that embraces its role in the bounds of a committed marriage where lasting joy is possible, where a permanence that you can't find elsewhere can be yours. Now, I realize that this description of sex, of what we're not supposed to do, of what we are supposed to do, raises huge questions. I'm especially aware that it can raise questions for those of you who are single now, perhaps single and feel yourself to be aging, your prospects to be fading. You're wondering whether or not this is something you can ever enjoy. It raises questions for those of you who have already been down the road of unbounded sex and can't turn back. Proverbs says unbounded sex leads to death. What does that mean for me? Others of you may have picked up on the fact that Proverbs assumes sex only belongs in a marriage between one man and one woman. And you know that you're not attracted to people of the opposite sex. What does that mean for me? What would faithfulness look like for me? I want to remind you and encourage you to go back to John chapter 4 this afternoon. John chapter 4 is a passage we looked at around this time last year in our series through John. There's a sermon online that unpacks it in great detail because I can't this morning. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman, a sexually experienced woman on her fifth husband, or on her fifth man, she wasn't married to him at the time, an outcast from the community that she lived in. He meets her at a well. A well not unlike the one described here in Proverbs chapter 5. She's come to get water because she was physically thirsty, but Jesus knows there's a deeper thirst in her. She's thirsty for acceptance, for satisfaction, for the belonging, maybe even the cleansing that she knows she can't produce on her own. Jesus comes to her in chapter 4 and engages her when no one else would. His disciples, his followers, they're shocked that he's talking to her. What are you doing talking to this woman who's damaged goods? Well, Jesus, Jesus doesn't see damaged goods. Jesus sees people that he loves who need cleansing and satisfaction. And that is exactly what he offers. Jesus promises this woman, Jesus goes to the cross to provide for this woman a cleansing and a satisfaction she couldn't get anywhere else. Something that clearly men had not been able to provide for her. She was on her fifth. She was still looking. Jesus says, I can give you water that when you've drank of it, you will never be thirsty again. Jesus came to hang upon a cross to be pierced by a spear where water flows from his side to cleanse the power of sin. Sin like this sexual fool that he engages with in John chapter 4. Sins of people like you. People like me. 
And what Jesus promises, what Paul, the apostle, promises, is that even the physical pleasure associated with sex, even the intimacy, relational intimacy that can come from it, even that, as wonderful as it is, is not who you are. You are not defined by whether and how often you get to have sex. You are defined by who you are, who you were made to be by God, who you were remade to be in Jesus. And Jesus says he can satisfy you in a way that sex never could. In fact, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 is that the union between a husband and a wife, the union that is fueled by a healthy sex life, is only a faint shadow of the union between Christ and the church. That's the whole point all along. Friends, you can do without sex as long as you get what sex was meant to point to. Sex is meant to point us to the beauty, the pleasure, the intimacy that comes when we get the beauty and wonder of God's love for us in Jesus. You can do without the trailer if you get to watch the movie. That's a live option for you this morning. Jesus is there. He'll take you if you come to him. He never turns anyone away. And he always, he always satisfies. Father, help us to trust this word, especially when it doesn't feel true. Give us the resources that we need to trust the boundaries that you have placed around the lives that we live. Sometimes those boundaries feel more like curses than blessings. We need the power of your spirit to shape our hearts so that we love what you love, so that our desires line up with yours. We ask you to do that for us.